We begin uh, hearing from the Lord and through the Gospel of John uh, this week. We begin having been through uh, first, first Kings and seen a lot of bad kings. Uh, we now get to see a good king. John chapter 20, uh, beginning in verse 29, we start here uh, because here is where John says, here's why I wrote this whole big book. <laughs> so before we begin the whole big book at 1-1 at, uh, next week, uh, we look at what he's aiming at. So when we, so as we see throughout the book, him bringing up each new thing, it's designed for this purpose that we see in verses uh, 30 and 31 here. Starting in verse 29, Jesus has just appeared to Thomas, who wasn't around with the disciples. Uh, when Jesus appeared to them on Sunday night, the Sunday night of the resurrection. And, and so Jesus appears to uh, the disciples again, and uh, Thomas is there. And so uh, Thomas had said, unless I see Jesus and put my, put my hand in his side uh, and see where the nails have pierced him, I will not believe. And so Jesus, when he appears then this uh, new time uh, to the disciples, he has Thomas uh, touch him and, and put his hand in his side um, so that he would see and believe. And so that's the background to this. Starting in verse 29, uh, John 20, this is God's word, eternally true. Then Jesus told him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There's a response of thankfulness that's printed for you in your bulletin or up here on the screen. The word of the Lord. Thanks, be to God. Thanks indeed. Let's pray. We look and you see your, your title there of this gospel lesson is the Christ is Jesus, the divine son of God. This is a, 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 a content packed title. <laughs> Sometimes titles, it's like, oh, whatever. <laughs> but uh, this is a, every word here just about except for the, the uh, definite articles here um, and of are, are very significant. Um, because it gets at what John is communicating here, why he writes this gospel. Now, John is writing this gospel. It's the fourth gospel written. Um, it is probably the second to last book of the New Testament. Therefore, the second to last book of the Bible that's written, Revelation being the last, also written by John. Um, and this is written, you do have a blank there. It's, uh, John writes mainly to Jewish Christians around A.D. 90. A.D. 90. Uh, now, the other Gospels, depending on you know who you talk to, um, the early church said that Matthew was the first. Uh, later scholarship likes Mark, but it doesn't make sense. So don't listen to people in the 20th century <laughs> talking about stuff 20 centuries ago. Um, and 17, yeah, it started about in the 18th, 18th century when they started liking Mark. But, but Matthew was known when we look at early church history and the writings of, of those who were writing in the first two centuries, they say Matthew was first. And it makes sense as you look at the book of, uh, of uh, uh, Acts that Matthew was probably written in the mid-40s. For, for, mid 
Okay, I think it was probably written as we see uh, different people in the early church writing about stuff, non-biblical writings, that it was Matthew writing to those who were in Antioch, um, roughly the same group who got the, the book of James, if you're here in Sunday school and got that book, people who had fled from Jerusalem at the stoning of Stephen. Um, Paul was in that church. I think Matthew served as a, um, a, a, a training document for Paul before he went out on his missionary journeys. But Matthew's in the mid-40s, and then you get to um, Luke in about 60. Uh, Luke is writing. He's a companion of Paul, uh, writing from Rome as Paul has been imprisoned. He writes to Theophilus, who's a, um, a Roman uh, governor. He calls Theophilus most excellent Theophilus, which is uh, like we call a judge your honor. You call the Roman governor most excellent whatever, and then stated his name. And so Luke's around uh, A.D. Uh, 60. And then uh, Mark, the early church tells us, as we look at their writings, uh, Mark was listening to Peter. And uh, Peter dies uh, under Nero. Um, he's imprisoned in Rome. Uh, Paul has been killed by Nero in Rome. And then Peter comes up to Rome, and he writes First and Second Peter uh, from there. And in Second Peter, he indicates, I'm about to die here. Um, I'm about to take my exodus um, to heaven. Uh, and so uh, the uh, early church said Mark was the book of, it was the, the recollection of Peter of his time with Jesus. And Mark was writing this down. Uh, Peter dies. Mark finishes off the gospel and releases it there. That, so that means we've got the first three gospels in the mid 40s and then one at 60 and one at about 68. And then John comes along and he's writing in 90. Okay, so by the time John is writing, um, the church has these three other Gospels. And so John doesn't have to cover old ground. When Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, he was writing to a man, Theophilus, probably there in Rome, probably who had some say in whether Paul stayed imprisoned, got killed, or got released. Um, and, and Luke makes the case there for Christianity being a, a, a religion of uh, forgiveness and no danger to the nation of Rome, um, that Jesus was a friend of Romans. Um, uh, but, but when we get to John, John doesn't have to cover that ground again. And this is why we see, if you're familiar with the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar, and John is very different. That's because the people John's writing to already had Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or at least one of them. And so why tell the same story again? And so John tells different things that the other three um, uh, uh, companions uh, of Jesus and as apostles um, had not covered yet. But there were also certain things happening in um, uh, John, is, uh, the Gospel of John's attested to being written by John from Ephesus where he was, multiple uh, uh, writers in the early church write this, that John was writing from Ephesus, and most likely uh, writing to those in the, the continent of what was known as Asia, which is Turkey today. Um, basically the same group of people to whom he'd write Revelation in those seven churches um, who are all, all in uh, modern-day Turkey. So that's the setup uh, for John there. And there are certain things that are part of the lives of the people in AD 90 in Turkey under the Roman government, um, under uh, Domitian, who we talked about um, in Sunday school. And, um, 
pressures from um, not just the Roman government, but mainly from other Jews. Jews who hadn't believed in Jesus. If you know any of the Gospels, you know that most Jews did not believe in Jesus. Um, John starts his Gospel, and we'll see it in chapter 1, verse, verse 11. He came to his own, that means the Jews, but his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, verse 12, we know that verse. But as many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God, um, even to those who believed in his name. Um, and so uh, John writes um, to uh, Jewish Christians around A.D. 90. Um, and these Christians, B, in your outline there, had been rejected. Think about what it would have been like to be a Jew in A.D. 90. All your family's Jewish. Right? It's the same today. If you're a Jew and you say, well, I'm a Christian now, you may get disowned. Or if you're Catholic and you don't marry inside the Catholic Church because you're marrying a, a Protestant and you marry inside a Protestant church, that's a big deal and you may be disowned or looked down upon. Well, it was very much that, that case, or it was very much the case for Jewish people in the first century if they became Christians. Uh, in fact, uh, after the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, so in Jerusalem, there's the temple that Jesus went in and out of, same temple that was reconstructed when people came back from the exile uh, in 516. And, and uh, this temple was destroyed by the Roman army in A.D. 70. And what happened in, Jewish, in the Jewish world and in Jewish synagogues all around the world is uh, laws came into effect which excommunicated uh, Jews who were believers in Jesus. Now, that may not sound like a surprise, but, but during the first century, Jews who were believers in Jesus were still connected to their families and, and connected to synagogues and that kind of thing. You see Paul, when he goes from town to town, he, he preaches in Jewish synagogues. But after the temple is destroyed, there are uh, decrees made, and the practice became that if you were a believer in Jesus, that you were excommunicated from the synagogue. You were rejected from the Jewish community. And so that's our B point there. They had been rejected by friends, family, and their Jewish community as a whole. And so uh, we saw, as, as Jim read down through chapter 9 for us, we keep this in mind. John is writing to Jews in A.D. 90, and he gives them this story that the Pharisees during Jesus' day had made a decree that anyone who agreed that Jesus was the Christ would be thrown out of the temple. And so the parents know this, and so they say, we don't know how he sees now. Ask him because they don't want to get thrown out, right? 9.22, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. They wouldn't be able to go to the synagogue. They wouldn't be able to worship. And at this time, Jesus is still alive. There aren't any churches. So you'd be excluded from all worship of the one true God by the Pharisees if you agree that Jesus was the Christ, which if you've been around the church for a while, that means the anointed one, that means the king. We'll talk a lot about that later. 
Um, in verse 34 of John 9, uh, to this they replied, <laughs> it's the, the Pharisees, when, when, the, um, when the, blind, the man who was blind, who now could see, said, why do you want me to repeat this again? Do you want to become his disciples too? <laughs> yeah, and this infuriates them. Verse 22, his parent, uh, uh, sorry, um, uh, verse 34, to this they replied, the Pharisees replied, you were, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. This was the case of those reading the Gospel of John. They were people who had been thrown out like this man who had been blessed by Jesus. Like this man who not only gained his physical sight from Jesus, but as we see at the end of chapter 9, his spiritual sight from Jesus. Who is he, Lord, that I may worship him? And Jesus says to him, I who am speaking to you am he. Can you imagine <laughs> being before Jesus and he gets it and he drops to his knees and he worships Jesus. So he sees God, he worships God, and God's people, the Jews, exclude him from being able to worship in the assembly. Okay, so that's who the Gospel of John's written to. Jews who'd been excluded by those who had carried along the Old Testament. The first 39 books are for them. They kept 1 Samuel's, first, you know, the Chronicles, Kings, and, you know, those were all together, so it was less than... 30, so it's about 35 books. But they'd carried this along. They'd been the keepers of the covenant and they said, we exclude you, you can't come in. Have you ever been excluded by anyone because of your faith in Jesus? Have you ever heard people disdain you because of your faith in Jesus? Um, this book is absolutely applicable to us. See, what set these recipients of the Gospel of John apart uh, uh, and what set them apart from their family and from the ethnic and religious community, the first century Jews, was their belief that Jesus, that the Christ was Jesus. Everyone was looking for the Christ, which means anointed one, which means king. They hadn't had a Christ, an anointed king, since really Jehoiachin or maybe you can say Zedekiah in, in about 600 B.C. That was the last time they had had a king, an anointed king, reigning over them in Jerusalem. So everybody's looking. That's the only thing missing. They've got a prophet. That's John the Baptist. They've got priests after they return from the exile. Lots of priests. They put Jesus on a cross. The priests do. But they don't have a king. And so that's the question when Jesus comes on the scene. Could this be the Messiah, that's the Hebrew word for Christ, which means anointed one. Could this be the Christ, the Greek word for anointed one? What they were saying, could this be, could this be the king? So that's what set them apart. They believed that the Christ had come and that the Christ was Jesus. And that's, that's our verse 31 here. These are written that you may believe that, that Jesus is the Christ. And we could translate that actually more appropriately. The Christ is Jesus, the way it's constructed there. But either way, it means the same. Okay? They believed that the Christ was Jesus and that the Christ, doubly, was the divine Son of God. 
Now, we'll work on this later as we go through the Gospel of John. But we say Son of God and we don't think about it much. But what John's getting at when he concentrates on through his Gospel, Son of God, is that Jesus was divine. And just to say it quickly, in the covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17, those are parallel accounts of the same thing, the covenant with David, God said to David, I will be, talking about David's all David's sons, I will be his father and he will be my son. And he's talking about Solomon. And so there's an understanding among God's, God's people in the Old Testament that the, the, the son of David king, the son of David, there were lots of descendants of David, but whoever was king was the son of David. And this is what Jesus gets called during his ministry. Son of David, have mercy on me. But the son of David, the king, that this king was the son of God. Now, it didn't mean that they thought Solomon was divine. It meant that, that this king over God's people was sorted out from all the other of God's people, all the other persons of God's people as being God's special one. This was a common thing in the ancient world that a, a nation would view its king as a son of their God. But this is true also in Israel. And so 2 Samuel 7, 14 is where you'll see it there. And it's a lowercase a s because it's not trying to say that Solomon was divine or Rehoboam or, or Jehoshaphat was divine. But that the king was God's special agent his, his little buddy, so to speak, to carry out his will among his people, to provide for and protect for his people through his strength, through his faithfulness to him, to God above. And, and, and so the, the point here that John is making is not only in Jesus do we have lowercase son of God, the king, the Christ, but we also have uppercase son of God. That this son of God, this son of David, is also divine. And that he has no beginning. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God. The king you were expecting, like Daniel 7.14 says, is divine and he should be worshipped. And yet he, in his humanity, is the son of David. But in his divinity, he's the eternal ever-existing, never-beginning Son of God. And so that's what we mean, and that's what John means when he calls Jesus the Son of God. Really think in your minds, when you see that term, especially as you're looking in John, when you see the term Son of God, think divine. Think God. Second person of the Godhead, but God. Uh, so that's what set them apart. They believe that the Christ had come, the King had come, and that King was Jesus, the Christ was Jesus, and that this king was divine, the divine son of God. So we can uh, see this in verse 31. Look there. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. Two things to believe there. Jesus is the Christ. He's the king that God has sent. But that he's also eternal God, eternal God. And that's set Christians in the first century who were Jewish apart from their relatives, their cousins, their mom and their dad. Uh, 9.22. Uh, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews 
For already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ. See, that's the question. Who is the Christ? And some were saying, I think Jesus is the Christ. And the Pharisees were saying, uh-uh, we don't want him as our king. In fact, we don't want any king because we're kind of kings. In effect, we're the functional kings. If, a king, if an actual son of David king comes along, we lose our power and our influence. We're no longer the main show. And so they agree among themselves. If anyone agrees that acknowledges that, notice John no, Slanders acknowledges. It's true. It's whether you acknowledge it or not. But acknowledges that Jesus was the Christ. Or John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. The Word, uh, the word was with God. The Word was God. And John 1.14 and the word became flesh and dwelled among us. That's Jesus. Now, D, D, John uses or writes, you can write either in there. John is using this gospel for a purpose. People already knew Jesus about him. They're already believers. Sure, they're always non-believers reading the book. And there are, some, there are some Gentile Christians reading the Gospel of John as well. And, and you see the little evidence of that as you go through the, the Gospel. But, but the reason John used, writes this Gospel, he uses this Gospel so that first century Jewish Christians would, and here are the things that he's trying to um, assure them of and teach them of as they have been cut off from their religious community, as they've been rejected by the people they care for the most, as they've had backs turned to them by those who used to love them. He wants them, he wants Jewish Christians to be aware. Uh, he wants them, he writes, so that they would, number one, be reassured, be reassured that their belief in this, that the Christ was Jesus, that this belief that they held, that the Christ was Jesus, and that the Christ was the divine the divine Son of God was not only reasonable, so he's writing this gospel so that they, having believed, would know that their belief that Jesus is, was the Christ and that he was divine was not only a reasonable belief, but it was also true. It was true. So, Chapter 20, verse 30, look at verse 30. Jesus did many other miraculous signs. He shows seven big ones in the Gospel of John. But John says he did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But those that were recorded in this book, I've shown you, were seen publicly. People saw these miracles, these signs, and they acknowledged they had happened just like with this man born blind. Even the enemies say, how is it that you're now seeing? Do you see that? <laughs> they don't, you know, it's like they don't really realize they've just admitted that Jesus has made a man who was born blind now see. They don't give argument to that. They just get mad. <laughs> they see the truth. We were talking about this in Sunday school. You see the truth, but you don't submit to the truth and say, I need to go home and rethink my life, right? You, instead of re readjusting your life to the truth, you just get mad at it. 
And that's what John shows over and over in his gospel. Um, so Jesus said, many have not recorded in this book, um, but acknowledged as having been done even by his enemies. John 9.16, from the, the blind man's story, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, speaking of Jesus, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner do miraculous signs? Right? They're following logic. If this man's a sinner, if this man's in rebellion to God, how would God do a miracle through this rebellious person? That doesn't make any sense. So they... Uh, they uh, disprove the Pharisees' statement that Jesus could not be from God. Uh, verse 17, finally, they turned again, the Pharisees turned again to the blind man. What have, what have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. Sir, so admitting he, Jesus, opened your eyes. They've just admitted that the miracle happened. They don't dispute that there has ever been a person born blind who then gets to see. They admit it all. And that's what John is showing us in his gospel. Um, John 9, 26, the Pharisees asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Not, he didn't open your eyes. Not, you've always been seeing and you've just been faking. They say, how did he, Jesus, open your eyes? And 9.32, no one has ever heard of opening the man, uh, this is the blind man speaking, nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Jesus is God and he came to earth. That's the argument of this blind man. This poor man who hasn't developed expertise in anything because he's been blind. He's just been begging in the temple. A simple man makes the logical argument about who Jesus is. So he writes for them to know that belief that Jesus, that Christ was Jesus and that Jesus is divine is reasonable and it's true. Number two, John writes the gospel to re so that these Jewish Christians who had been excluded from their communities, rejected for their faith in Jesus, that they be reassured that their belief in this, that the Christ was Jesus, who was God's son, was worth, was worth all it had cost them. So those receiving this book had, had received, believed in Jesus at great cost. Their parents had disowned them. Brothers, sisters had disowned them. Cousins had disowned them. They were not admitted to the synagogues anymore. It had cost them. It had cost them much. They were cast out of the temple uh, like the blind man and like the blind man's parents would have been had they answered the question. And then three, John writes that these Jewish Christians who had given up much would understand why only a few of those who should have believed did. He writes to give them an understanding of why is it, in view of this evidence, in view of what Jesus did publicly, in view of the way he taught, in view of the the things that honest people said about him, like this blind man who didn't have a dog in the fight. Who is he? <laughs> you know, yeah. Why is it that so few have believed, especially among the Jews 
who knew the Old Testament scriptures. So John writes so they would understand why this was so. Uh, Jesus says in John, at the end of John 9, verse 39, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see, non-believers come to faith, and that those who see will become blind. If you reject Jesus, you, you walk in blindness. Some Pharisees who were with him said this and asked, what are we? I love how Jim read this. Jim said, what? <laughs> what are we blind to? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you see, your guilt remains. And so John writes to explain to us and to you, not just Jewish Christians in the first century, you know it's true. You know you left neighborhoods where everyone else is sleeping and reading their papers. Well, they don't read papers anymore. <laughs> Whatever they're doing now. Um, looking at their phones. Um, why is it that so many people don't believe? We have a message that through Jesus, you can have life eternal. Eternal blessedness. Through Jesus, you can have wisdom in how to live your life. You can have joy and peace and love and reconciliation. You can have self-control. None of this is bad. None of this is stuff people don't want. That's our message. And why have people not believed it? What does it cost them except for being a good person? It makes no sense that anybody rejects the message we bear. And John explains clearly throughout the gospel why it is that so few have, that so few have believed. Now, number one, number one for you, uh, your belief uh, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God is true and well proven. Your belief that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God is true and well proven. First uh, Corinthians 15, one through eight, Paul talks about this. Jesus appeared resurrected to over 500 people. It wasn't done in, in secret. Um, John 20, verse 30, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Jesus had a very public ministry. Um, when he was on his, in, in trial at the Sanhedrin, he says, ask others. I've not said anything in secret. I've preached openly in your synagogues. People have seen it. Just have them report. Number two, number two. So know that your faith, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, divine, is true and well-proven. Number two, most will not believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And there's a clear reason for it. A clear reason they do not believe. Um, verse 29, uh, the rest of the gospel, he writes us to show us that seeing or not seeing the miracles of Jesus isn't the issue. Right? He says to Thomas, blessed are you because you've seen and believed, but blessed are those. Right? Blessed are those who have believed without seeing. Okay, so it's beyond why people haven't believed. It's not a physical issue. It's not an issue of raw physical proof. 
chapter 9, we see raw physical proof. We see people admit the raw physical proof. There's a man who was born blind who's been begging at the temple, the place where we work. We pass him every morning when we come into work. We've seen him there. We know he's blind. He looks like a blind person. He operates like a blind person. Um, and it's not seen that determines belief or disbelief. Um, rather, something else is at play. Um, why one person believes and the next person doesn't. Most don't. Most haven't believed. Um, most don't and most won't get over it. Okay. That's who we, that's who we are. Jesus taught this, you know, Matthew seven thirteen. enter by the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. The wide gate, the broad road that leads to destruction. That's verse 13 of Matthew 7. And then in verse 14, he says, But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life. And, get this, only a few find it. He's telling his disciples, Don't be surprised that only a few believe. He gives them a, a proverbial statement. If you want to be sophisticated, a gnomic statement, like a gnome. <laughs> it means always true, like a proverb, right? It was true in Jesus' day. It was true in the days of the apostles in the book of Acts. Most don't believe. And they get thrown out of synagogues, one after the other. It's true in the days when John is writing the Gospel of John. And it's true in our day. Right? How many people are in Greater Clayton? 22,000? 50 here. <laughs> Don't be surprised. Don't be discouraged by this. Jesus said, this is how it is. Only a few find the small gate, the narrow road that leads to life. Most enter through the wide gate that leads to destruction. So most will not believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and there's a clear reason uh, for it. Um, so A, it's not like Thomas, just that they haven't seen the risen Jesus. Right? Jesus deals with this in Luke 16. The, the parable, the, the um, rich man and Lazarus, and, and the, 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 the beggar goes up, and he's with the Lord, and he's with Abraham. And then there's the rich man and the poor man who's been a beggar, who's now with the Lord and with Abraham, is with, you know, with the Lord. But the rich man at whose gate he sat is in hell. And the rich man says to the Lord, send back somebody to tell my brothers and my family that this is the state of people when they die. You're either in heaven or hell. And the return to that is the, the, the answer to that is even if a man rises from the dead, they will still not believe. Okay? So that means today, if people saw the risen Jesus before them and he was doing miracles, he was raising the dead, he was making the blind see, they would be like John 9, the Pharisees. They would still not believe, right? Steve, this goes to Sunday school stuff. 
in the face of facts, in the face of things right before them. It's not a question of, of seeing or not seeing. It's not a question like with Thomas or B, most who believed, think about this through the centuries, most who believed haven't seen. Right? Think, think about the church through the centuries. Very few, 500 people out of all the church saw the resurrected Jesus. That's it. Um, so most who believed haven't seen the risen Jesus. Um, so it's something to recognize. Peter writes of this toward the end of his life. He's in Rome. It's in the mid-60s. And he says this in 1 Peter 1.8 to the Christians in this same area in, in, in Turkey. He says, though you have not seen him, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. So most will not believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. There's a clear reason for it. And we'll see a lot of this through the gospel as we did in John 9 with the Pharisees. So don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged over that. That is as it uh, as it was intended by the Lord. Number three, number three, uh, your belief that Jesus, that the Christ is Jesus, the son of God has and will have great cost to you. It has and will have great cost to you. And, and most of us say, of course, I have a brother, I have a sister, I have parents who make fun of me for my faith. who tell me I'm crazy. Okay. Um, maybe if you came to faith in later in life, you have sons or daughters that say this to you. Um, maybe you have friends that say this to you. Maybe there are people who, you know, you're afraid to even let them know that, that you're a believer because you know that might come with the persecution of just exclusion, social exclusion, ostracism, because you're a believer. Um, and and it, it does come with great cost. I was uh, an English major in college and one of the required uh, English courses was mythology because that you know literature uses Greek mythology and so you, you got to know what the references are and so it was an interesting course and it was a course I took with one of my favorite professors um, Dr. Jackson and she would write on her notes Dr. J which I also liked uh, <laughs> uh, but but she asked that at the front of the course mythology she said you know our, one of the things we'll cover in this course at the beginning is uh, Christian things, things from the Bible, because that's also symbolism that's greatly in literature. And we'll refer to this also as mythology. Now, does this offend any of you or any of you upset by this? And so, great cost. Uh, but who do I, whose approval do I want? Dr. Mabel Jackson, whom I appreciated greatly or my lord <laughs> i'm going with my lord right but there's great cost so i raised my hand and i said i'm a christian and i believe the bible's true i think it was, the, <laughs> it was so intense for me you know you remember things in moments of intensity and i believe that all the bible's true and i don't believe that the bible's a myth i believe what's written in it is history but i understand if you speak of it as myth but I don't believe it's untrue. Um, and all eyes on me, right? People look, I'm not at a Christian university. Um, and, and, but, but it costs you. 
you become the weird guy or the weird person, right? Um, because you're not going with the flow. It's great cost, great cost to us. Uh, Jesus talks about this in John 15, 18. He says to his disciples, if the world, now he's talking to his disciples now, and he's not out in public, John 15. If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. So there's cost. There will be people who are non-believers, gratefully most. We don't live in an Islamic country, okay? And so most will find out you're a Christian and they won't hate you. They won't do things to harm you. They won't turn you in so you're, you're, so you're imprisoned or, or do something to you so you'll lose your job because you're a Christian. For the most part, that's true. But there will be people who hate you and say, oh, you're one of those. And you see their whole demeanor change towards you. Uh, if you're in a public situation or a corporate situation or a school situation, you know there are things you can say that are true that harm nobody and you would lose your job. The world hates you because of your faith in Jesus. If you said something about Allah, you would be okay. No threat. But if you say, in my religion, the religion I believe in, it tells me that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and that nobody comes to the Father through him. I'm not saying it, but my religion does and I believe my religion. You might lose your job. Or you might have to go through six weeks of diversity training. <laughs> As Bill Maher says, a, a grown man being brought through diversity training. Um, he's become a friend of Christians, if you know Bill Maher. <laughs> he's not a Christian, but he likes to follow facts. And, and so um, he ends up saying a lot of things where we're like, Wow, we agree on this. And he realizes he agrees with Christians on this, even though he's an, uh, uh, a dogged atheist um, religiously. First um, uh, John 3.13, do not be surprised, my brothers, that the world hates you. Okay, so that's the, that's the biblical position. Expect the world to hate you. Um, so we may have lost various people, friends and family, potential friends, um, we may be popular and, and being known as a Christian may make us not that way. But number four, number four, the cost of believing that the Christ is Jesus, the Son of God, is worth it. It's worth it. Um, why? A, because those who believe have eternal life. Verse 31, that believing you might have life in his name. Now recognize this. We'll talk about lots later. Um, generally in John, it's Jesus gives you life and that's why you believe. And so if you're believing, that means you have life. You get that? So it's regeneration before faith, if you know that language. It's you get life from Jesus. You can see it in the um, uh, uh, declaration of the gospel this morning. The Father has life in himself and he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And Jesus has life, in, and just as the Father has life in himself, so even so the Son has life in himself, and he gives it, the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. And whomever he gives life believes. 
So realize that's all wrapped up. But for now, we just say those who believe have eternal life. Um, you don't want eternal death. The other thing Jesus talks a lot about is those who are condemned. And they're condemned because they do not believe that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. Um, John 3.16, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Okay? Um, B, B. Um, so why do, why is it worth it? Because those who believe have eternal life and B, because those who believe are blessed by God. As Jesus says to Thomas, blessed are those who believe without seeing. That's you. Jesus says you are blessed now in your life. You are blessed and you experience the blessing of God because you're one of those who's believed. Um, so, I, you know, if you've been around a while, you know, I love my mom and dad and, and just feel very fortunate, um, especially in today's you know, age. That's just a very, un, you know, almost an unusual thing that you'd say, I really had a great mom and dad. And, and so and, and know that that's just a, a thing of God's mercy uh, uh, upon me. And so um, uh, but my mom and dad gave me life. Okay, now, ultimately, God did. He's the one who opens the womb. But my mom and dad, if it weren't for them, um, I would have no life. All right. Um, so they gave me life. My mom and dad did. They, they're my, the human means of me being a living being. They weren't perfect, but they were great parents uh, to me. Um, but growing up in my family, even though my mom and dad were great parents, meant certain hardships. Now, my hardships were very much first world hardships and very much growing up in the 70s hardships, not growing up in the, the 20 teens hardships, which are much harder. Um, you know, for growing up in the 70s, I knew one kid whose parents were divorced. OK, um, so so things were much uh, less hard, but there were hardships. It meant because my dad was a farm kid growing up and because he milked. 55 dairy cows with his dad being the youngest son and so his dad and he and I don't know if his dad even helped him my dad milked 55 cows before going to school every morning so my dad would be up at 5 5 30 on a Saturday because <laughs> that he that that was just ingrained in him um and so when we, when I was going into the first grade, we moved to eight acres of land. And so I spent my Memorial Days, I spent my Labor Days pruning trees and picking up the, the limbs and putting them into a cart and mowing the yard and raking leaves when all my friends and their subdivisions <laughs> with their half acre plot of land or quarter acre plot of land were having fun. And so that was a, a, a thing of contention between my parents. We'd get in from Mark and my brother and I would get in from all day being out with the tractor and raking leaves and picking apples and that kind of thing on a holiday. <laughs> my mom said, would say, Carl, all their friends are out having fun and you've got them here working. <laughs> so that was a little bit of a hardship for me. And I knew that all my friends were having fun. They'd call me and say, John, can you come over and play? And I'd say, no, I got prune trees. <laughs> we had trees all over the place. Um, uh, and, 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 you know, my dad would wake me up sometimes on Saturday mornings. And I'd, I was a late sleeper. If he'd leave me alone, I'd sleep till 11 a.m. 
And so he'd wake me up, and so I'd have to force a smile on my face. <laughs> uh, but, but it also meant some moral things. My dad was not a Christian until he was 45. That was when I was a sophomore in high school. So growing up as a kid, he wasn't a Christian, but he had uh, devout Christian parents. And that meant I grew up um, with certain things that were just part of who we were. Um, there was no er, there was no immorality in my family. There was no laughing at just being wicked or lying. Uh, we told the truth. We were responsible. If our authorities said to do something, we needed to do it. And if we didn't do it, then we were in trouble at home. And it wasn't that my parents were, were mean to us at all, but it just meant our kids could goof off, our friends could goof off, and our friends could get in all kinds of trouble but we couldn't join join in the fun. <laughs> I think this is why, you know, all my life I had friends like Matt, you know, who were just, you know, doing all kinds of things outside the box because, you know, it was like, they were just hilarious to me. I had a friend in high school named Tim Canale. He's still a friend on Facebook. And I remember walking through the lunch line with him. I was a freshman, he was a sophomore. And he, he got, he, first of all, I cut in line. He came to where I was, that's at the front line. So he came up to me and started talking to me. Then he cut in line and instead of taking a tray, he just took a sloppy joe off of a tray. And then he talked to me and as he's talking to me, working his way down the line, he ate the sloppy joe. He literally, as he got toward the, you know, there's a little doorway, you see what's coming. There's a little doorway and then there's a desk with the woman there to pay. As he gets toward the doorway, he's turning toward me like this, talking, eating the last bit of sandwich, and then he literally goes like this and walks through <laughs> without pain. Um, he's a middle school principal now. <laughs> um, uh, but 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 uh, uh, you know, th so there was cost to me because I knew there were times where my friends said, "John, let's go do this," and I knew I couldn't because of my parents. Um, so again, very first world, very first world cost uh, to me. Um, but I was blessed growing up. I really was, I was blessed because my mom was my mom and my dad was my dad. Um, my dad taught me things that I still benefit from today. Um, some of you like being in the church because of the teaching you get, guess what? This is how my dad spoke. My dad was a great teacher. I'm not trying to be like my dad. I just talk like my dad. I just explain things like my dad explained things to me. You people are being blessed because I grew up in my dad's family. I was blessed on the soccer field, even though my dad never played soccer because he understood how games worked. He understood how athletics worked. He understood how mentality was on the field. So we'd score a goal and he'd shout out. You've heard this before. John. Score again, <laughs> because he knew the other team was down and they wouldn't be on their tiptoes. And it was a great opportunity. And you don't want to be ahead by just one goal if you're playing soccer. You want to be ahead by three. You know, all kinds of things I learned and benefited from from my dad. And from my mom, I learned how other people are more important than you are. Uh, you know, I learned that, that your life is not about your personal ambitions or anyone saying anything nice about you. Your life is about spilling it out for the people you love. That's what I learned about my mom. That's why my kids love my mom. That's why Betsy loves my mom. She's there for everyone else around her. And she doesn't care if anyone ever gives her notice. What a gift to me. What a blessing to me to, to learn that 
watching watching my mom. Um, so I benefit from that. And that's what it's like with believing in Jesus. Um, yep, you'll be excluded from some things. Um, yep, some things will take some discipline for you in life to follow Christ in a world that's not following Christ. Like my dad used to say, John, I know all your friends are doing that. And they're accepted and it's okay with their parents and everyone will laugh and think that's cute. But not you. That's not who we are. Um, and so that's what being a Christian's like. There are all these things that everyone else is doing and that they'd never be faulted. And not even wicked things. Um, but we do these things. We, so we have this discipline and we'll be excluded. Coworkers and friends may not include you in things after hours. That was the thing growing up. You know, as a, as a moral kid, growing up in my parents' home, I became a Christian in eighth grade. But, but as a moral kid growing up in, in, in school, you know, as, as things, as we got older, middle school and high school and then college, I started being, everyone was my friend because I was nice with people, but I wouldn't be excluded in any, or I wouldn't be included in after hours things because I knew I wasn't doing that kind of stuff out there. And so that'll, you know, you know that from your workplace, you know that from various situations in your life that people may be your friends at the water cooler, so to speak, but they're not inviting you over to their house for their parties. Um, but in this life and forever, your faith in Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, will be far more valuable than getting invited to a party. <laughs> um, so number one there, B, B1 for you Bananas fans. Uh, because faith in Jesus makes one and two, and, and I, I had in there first you, but I usually put me in there for your sake, but I didn't want you to feel arrogant, so I put one in there. But I want you to realize the truth of this, not to your glory, but to God's. Because faith in Jesus makes one, and this is why you're blessed by God. So B is why you're blessed by God today in your life. Because faith in Jesus makes one into a great person. Faith in Jesus makes one into a great person. And here's how we're defining that. So the dash there. A person who's a person like God intended a person to be. Not a marred, disfigured version of that. And we've got Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Human beings were created as images of God, as reflections of who God is. And as you're a Christian, as God's spirit lives in you, and as you've got this as your guidebook guiding you through life, you become a great person. You become a great friend. You're the one who's patient. You're the one who's compassionate. You're the one who's not picking on the weak person. You're the one who's helping the weak person. You're the, you're the one who loves your mom and your dad. You're a good son to your mom and dad. You're a good daughter to your mom and dad. You're a good father. You're a good mom to your kids. Why? Because you're a Christian. You become, you God intended you to be a person who's a loving father, a loving mother, a loving brother or a loving sister, who's helping people, who's not living your life for your own being built up and glorified, 
but is living your life for the sake of other people's being helped. And that's a great person. That's who God created people to be. People who love him and love other people and are seeking to help other people in what they're doing. And so that's the truth of being a Christian. And that's why we don't want to be haughty, because that's not like God wants us to be. God tells us to be humble. And humble people are great to be around. Um, if someone's arrogant and bragging about himself, you don't say, oh, he's great. You say, that guy's a jerk. But if someone's humble, you say, he's a really great guy. Humble is all good. She, she'll, never, she'll never bring attention to herself, but she's always doing stuff for other people. That's a great person. And God designed you to be great because he created you in his image. And he's great. And he created you and made you to reflect his greatness in the world. And that's not an arrogant greatness. That's just you're becoming more and more as a Christian who you were designed as a human being to be. One who cares about others. One who goes to work to produce a product or a service so other people are blessed. Not who goes to work so you get more money so that you can brag about that to other people and put them down. So that's why you're blessed. Because as you grow in Christ, you're becoming a better and better person. You're becoming a greater and greater person because you're becoming more godly. You're becoming more Christ-like. And lo and behold, that's satisfying to your soul because you're fulfilling the purpose of your creation. And that feels right. And you have satisfaction there. So that's why you're blessed in this life because you're being more and more shaped into, conformed into the image of Jesus, uh, turned into an image of God instead of a marred version of that. And then number two, uh, those who believe are blessed by God in this life because faith in Jesus, number two, because faith in Jesus means you have something in you that others don't possess, and that's eternal life and not just physical life. And John uses that term in both ways, but mainly he uses the term as something you have now. In the present, you have eternal life. So in other words, John doesn't look at eternal life as, well, you've got regular, ordinary life now like everybody does. But then when you die, you'll live on, and that's your eternal life. Uh, John uses eternal life in the present tense throughout his gospel so that whoever believes in him has eternal life in the present. It's something you have inside you which you didn't have because you were dead in Adam. But when the Spirit comes to you and blows upon you, John 3, causes you to be born again, then you have spiritual life in addition to physical life. And so you and I as Christians have spiritual life or eternal life within us. And so when we die, we just continue on in this eternal life that we already have because of Jesus, because he's given us life. Okay? So as we interact with others in, in the world and are around non-Christians, it's you know, God sees it with his spiritual vision, but we can't. But we can know it's there if like we're around non-Christians. We can see, okay, 
you know, we're, we're in a mixed group of people here. There are those with, with eternal life walking around who understand life, who know God, who see God, who see things from God's perspective. And then there are people who just have physical life. And that aspect of who they were intended to be is just absent because their eternal life is it's dead. If they don't have eternal life, they're spiritually uh, dead. Verse 31 here in this passage, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John 3.16, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So Paul can accurately say Second uh, Corinthians uh, 4.7 here. As we look at the fact that your faith that the Christ is Jesus and that Jesus is divine, the divine Son of God, the fact that that has great cost to you, we see that that cost is worth it. And this is what Paul said and what Jim read for us earlier from 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 4.17 For our light and momentary troubles. Now think of Paul. He's already listed all the things he's been through. Shipwreck, uh, being beaten with 39 lashes, being imprisoned multiple, multiple times. They're not all recorded for us. But we find out and as, as he writes the Corinthians, he's been imprisoned many times um, through being disregarded by others, excluded by the Jews. All these things occurring. And he calls them, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. The eternal glory we have, the eternal life that we have, far outweighs all our afflictions, all our troubles that we will experience all our lives. So he says, 2 Corinthians 4.18, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, like Thomas, but on what is unseen, for what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And that's who we are. We're people who live by what's eternal. And that's smart. Not by our own being smart, but Jesus has given us life. He's been pleased to give us life. And he's made us smart. He's given us eyes to see like that blind man in John 6 so that we're no longer blind like the Pharisees so we can live with eyes that see eternity and make decisions in life based on eternity, based on our eternal life. So our summary. As, so as we go through the book of John, as we start in John 1 next week, uh, we've been prepped for it here as to why John wrote we know this, the Christ is Jesus. The Christ is Jesus. That's your summary statement. The Christ is Jesus, who is divine son of God. The Christ is Jesus, who is divine son of God. Next, know this, few, few believe this. So this belief will cost you. Few believe this, so you will be an oddball and this will cost you. But this belief is well worth it. 
The Christ is Jesus, who's divine son of God. Few believe this, so it will cost you. But this belief is well worth it for you and for me. Let's pray.